you. May the Lord's blessing be upon you this morning. If you're visiting with us, uh, we especially want to welcome you. I'm delighted to have you with us. And please feel free to, uh, uh, to hang out for a while afterwards in the fellowship hall. You can have a cup of coffee or tea and I don't know if there's crumpets out there or not, but <laughs> probably donuts or something. But please feel free to, to, to get to know some of the people here. Uh, we are uh, going to conclude one, just one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible uh, with regard to the eternal security of those who are in Christ. I mean, this is the chapter you go to when you doubt salvation, when you struggle uh, with assurance. You're one who believes in Christ. You trust in Christ. You believe He's the way, the truth, and the life. Um, you've repented of any thinking um, uh, that you can get yourself to heaven or get yourself or make yourself right with God, um, when you believe that it's Christ alone, uh, your assurance is here. Rachia. And uh, this morning, um, I want to begin and read verses 31 to 39. We did look at verses 31 to 34 last week. I don't think that I gave it near as much time um, is ought to be given to it. So we will look at the remainder, verses 31 to 39, to conclude our study of Romans 8. Amen? All right. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we, we pray and come to you in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ on the basis of his finished work on our behalf and entrust ourselves to you by the leading of your Holy Spirit to enable me to communicate the truth herein within the scriptures to the very hearts of your people here this morning. We ask that you'll give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive and to understand and to embrace this truth that we might grow with confident assurance, leading to greater holiness in our daily walk, that you may be glorified and that the church again be built up, edified. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been in the midst of certain circumstances that have made you doubt God's love for you? Has your assurance been rocked by the you know, experience of, of painful or unexplainable um, circumstances just in daily life? Have you ever done or said certain things which made it hard for you to think that God still loves you? And for some the first impression from those kinds of experiences is that surely God is against me. Surely God 
cannot love me like I hear that he loves me. Now, we've all struggled with you know, confidence of God's unchanging love, but it's not because of any inconsistency within God, but it's only due to our own vacillating hearts, which is the, which is the origin of struggle for assurance. He doesn't vacillate. Only we do. And we know, as the, as the hymn says, that we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Now, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've experienced that feeling. You've probably thought that. So how then do we, how then do you encourage other Christians? How do you encourage yourself to those who are realistic and to know that indeed they are prone to wander? Because we still, Romans 7, deal with this flesh. Well, you have to remind them, and you must remind yourself, of objective truth to which we contribute absolutely nothing. The objective reality of the gospel. And that's precisely what Paul is doing in verses 31 through 39. This is the objective reality of God's gospel for his people. Now, again, we must remember that these words were written to the church in Rome, first century church, who would soon undergo horrible persecution. It would be just a few short years where these these words, Paul's hypothetical scenarios, would become indeed hurting realities to these people, the recipients of this letter. This is real life. And the chapter opens with the confidence that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. As I said, you believe in Christ, you trust in Christ, you entrust yourself fully and completely to him in the work he did on your behalf in living a life in your place and then dying in your place, raising and ascending. Yes, you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. I believe, I trust. Okay, if you believe that by faith, you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, chapter one verse or chapter eight, verse one, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's how the chapter begins. The chapter concludes with the fact that there's no separation, therefore, for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation. There is therefore now no separation possible. This is the assurance he wants to drive home. And this is for those who believe, not believing in belief. Not having faith in faith, but faith in the gospel. Faith in Christ. Not merely about him, but in him. So true Christian belief as we see it has substance, doesn't it? True Christian faith has substance because our faith has an object, and this object is the one in whom we trust. It's the person, Jesus Christ. This is the object of our faith. He's the object of our faith. He's the substance of our faith. He's the reality of our faith. And those who trust in him, there's no condemnation. No condemnation, no separation. Now, in these verses that are before us this morning, there are five primary questions that Paul raises, which together show us the irrefutable security of the believer's salvation. This is a magnificent source of comfort and assurance, again, can't say this enough. One of the most comforting passages, chapters in all the Bible for the Christian. And that is that through suffering, persecution, temptation, and hardships through life of any kind, all who have been chosen, called, and therefore justified, as we saw in verses 29 and 30, by God's grace, will indeed endure to the end. And are indeed more than conquerors, as we shall see more than conquerors. So Paul's initial question, for which we looked at last week, okay, what shall then, or what shall we say to these things? Okay, looking back to everything he has said thus far in this letter, what shall we say of all these things? And then he proceeds to ask a series of rhetorical questions. Now, when we get to verse 35, if you notice, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, he could have said, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. But by asking who shall separate us, we're forced to pause. 
And we're forced to consider the matter at hand. This is rhetorical language. Very common and very important in the Greco-Roman world. Actually, wealthy people who would have dinner parties would hire rhetoricians to come and speak. Those gifted with rhetoric. And rhetorical language, as I said, is very important, and it refers to the science of persuasion. To persuade you to think a certain way by way of a list of stated facts. And a rhetorician was a person skilled with the, with the gift of convincing and persuading his audience. And that's how Paul is speaking in this portion of the letter. We, we see this form of skill being exercised as Paul speaks rhetorically. He's not seeking information here. Not whatsoever. But he's seeking to advance his argument. Last time we began to dig into this series of rhetorical questions raised by Paul in order to hear the apostle come back and say, if God is for us, it matters not who or what is against us. It doesn't matter. This is what we must know. This is what we must trust because we trust in him and we're in him. And he wants to lead his audience to this grand conclusion. Those who are in Christ, God is for them. He's for them. And therefore, cannot be separated from him. Do you believe this? So the question is, how do we know for sure? How do we know for sure God is for us? And Paul looks back now, and he sums up his argument. And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. And our first point this morning is the assurance that God is for us. Assurance for the believer that God is for us. For us. In verse 28, he assures us, Paul does, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God will work all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Not that all things are good, right? Now we learned not all things are good. And when Christians cite this verse and say, hey, it's all good, bro, no, it's not all good. Bad things in life, they ain't good. The fact of the matter is, God is working all those things together for the good of his people according to his purpose, according to his sovereign will. He works it together. Even the most troubling, traumatic trials of life, as well as the dark threads of our own lives, sin included. He's weaving all the sin and all the sufferings of this world together into a fine tapestry. If you ever look at a tapestry, the backside of a tapestry or a Persian rug, it's like a, it's a mess of threads, right? You turn it over and you see a masterpiece. That's the Christian life. Amen is right. He actually exploits all those things. Trouble, trial, trauma, sin, Darkness, he exploits it all for his glory and the good of those that are in him through his son. That's what he does. He exploits it. And it's for our own good in the end. And that end is what, beloved? What's the end? Glory. That's the end. That's the end in context here. And that is ultimate conformity to the image of Christ, verse 29. We're going to work our way through these verses. All things work together for the good of those who love God. We only love him because he first loved us. Conformity to the image of Christ, that's the goal, verse 29. Purposing to make us like Jesus, transforming our lives all the way to glory. As Mark said this morning, we are not fully sanctified yet. You cannot be fully sanctified on this earth. You won't be fully sanctified until you enter glory. Amen. So just as sure as we have been called by God, we know that we were foreknown by God. He placed it, he beset his love upon us. Foreknown, called, and as such, we shall be glorified, verse 30. It's certain. Now, if God is that much for you, who then could possibly be against you? Verse 31. Who? Conclusion? Nobody. No thing. 
Okay, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now notice there, in verse 31, he promises that no enemy can defeat us. In verse 32, he promises that there's no limit to the good that God wills to do for us with the goal of glory in mind. And he's arguing here from the greater to the lesser. Notice, if God did not spare his son but gave him up, that's the greater, okay, to the lesser, won't he then, if he did that for you, won't he then just as graciously give you everything else you need to get you to glory? He's not going to give you every material desire. Is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel will take this and twist it out of context and try to apply it to that. That's not what is in view here. But everything we need to persevere to the end by faith. And if we persevere to the end by faith, we know with certainty that it's he who preserves us to the end by faith. The faith that he grants us, you see. That's why faith is a gift. And if he gave his son to redeem you, he'll forever give you the spirit to seal and receive you in the end. Don't leave out the spirit, as we'll see this morning. Okay? Verse 33. Now, that being true, who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? Accusation. After all, it's God who justifies. Okay, now notice. Since there's no limitation on the gift of God's grace, there is therefore then no opposition that can thwart us. That is, thwart God's goal, which is glory. Can't be thwarted. Together with the fact that no accusation can stand against us. Now, this is where we often fall and get tripped up. It's with accusation. Amen? It's with accusation. Now, many things in themselves can accuse us. Many things can accuse us. When we read the, the beautiful law of God, when we read the, the uh, imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, and when we compare ourselves to those, we, we fall short. This we know. Right? There's not a one of us here who's loved God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, with all our strength, and loved our neighbor as ourselves. Now, that may accuse us if we don't have a proper perspective of the Word of God as a whole. And that He did it for us, and Him being in us now enables us to do that. And when we fail, we confess, and we print, and we move on by faith to be strengthened in sanctification by the Spirit. So that might accuse us. Conscience. You ever been accused by your conscience? Conscience may accuse you. William Shakespeare wrote this. My conscience hath a thousand several tongues. And every tongues bring every tongue brings in a several tale. And every tale condemns me for a villain. End quote. He's hard enough to read, let alone understand. <laughs> Conscience is why we lay awake at night from sins of the day or, or sins of the past. And again, it will accuse us if we don't deal with those accusations according to the gospel. Biblically, in Christ, confession, repentance, move on. If you don't, you may feel not only accused but condemned. Another enemy is people. People who accuse. Now, David spoke of this experience in Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. David experienced this. Perhaps you have. Sometimes people you know, who we, we thought were our friends, people we've trusted, people that we have confided in and thought were our allies, turn around and actually come against us with railing accusations. 
If you live long enough, you'll experience this. They come at you with rumors. They come at you with slander. Or they go out from you with rumors and slander. One person, just one, might resolve to conspire against you and sow so much discord that they end up recruiting a mob of malefactors to buy into the, the accusations laid against you. And they end up hating you and don't even know why. Sometimes they raise accusation mixed with truth and error. They might not like something about your personality. So they take that and then they rail against that. They rail against you and they add to that. And they accuse you with bitterness, resentment, and hatred. And they start a campaign of discord. Well, God says something interesting about discord. In Proverbs 6.16, he says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Now, two of those things, two of the seven, are a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. That's a heavy warning. That's a heavy indictment. May we always beware of that. So sometimes people can accuse us or condemn us. Again, the question, who? Who? Who can raise an accusation? Who can lay any charge against God's elect? Well, perhaps Satan. Right? Satan, no doubt, attempts to bring about every conceivable slander against God's, what? Elect. That's what's in view here. The elect of God. The true people of God. And by the way, with reference to election, you know there's no explanation given in all of Scripture with regard to God's elective purposes other than His love. And why does God love us, those who are in Christ? Answer according to John Stott. He loves us because he loves us, and he he loves us because he loves us, certainly not because we're lovable. But only because he loves us. It's his elect, verse 33, and only them that the enemy attempts to slander, conspire against, and condemn. It's only the elect of God that he does this. Mark read from Zechariah 3. Look at this for a moment. His name is Satan, which means adversary, which means accuser. Notice, then he showed me Joshua. The word Joshua, means, the name Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. And from Joshua we get Yeshua, Jesus. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You get the picture. It's vivid. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen, in this context, chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now that, that there is a metaphor for the exile from which God had plucked his people. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So here then, beloved, on the basis of Satan's accusations, he's not fit to stand as high priest on behalf of the people. That's the accusation. He can't stand as high priest. Stand behalf of your people, God? He's filthy. Get the picture. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him, And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head, which was part of the high priest's garb. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Okay, that is to say, when God justifies a person, all accusation at once lose their validity. Immediately. The moment one comes to Christ, all accusations lose all their power. In Revelation chapter 12, beloved, Satan is called the accuser of the the brethren, the elect of God, the people of God. That is the true Christian, those who are in Christ. He prowls about looking for leverage and looking for an opportunity to whisper into the ear of God's elect, the people of God, in order to scheme you, 
That is to trick you into thinking and feeling. What does the whole armor of God protect? Every piece protects the way you think and the way you feel. He wants to scheme you into thinking and feeling that God is reluctant to love you as his own. That's his trick. That's his goal. He wants to make you think it and feel it. Those are very subjective, aren't they? There again, we must go back to objectivity, the objective truth of the gospel. That's what Paul's doing. Because Satan tirelessly works towards the goal to cause you to think and feel that it's actually God who condemns you. This is masterful trickery. Now the accusation comes from him, but he causes you and schemes you to think that God is condemning me. Whereas the scripture says, no one can, those who are in Christ, no one can condemn. There's no condemnation. It's like the parable of the prodigal son. Think about this. The wayward boy. Scripture says when he came to himself, he went back to his father and he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father did what? Received him, killed the fatted calf, cloaked him in the finest robe, and celebrated. And then the camera pans over, moves over to the other son. What did the older son say? All these years I've been serving you and never have you given me a young goat. This is also translated, I have been slaving for you all these years. William Hendrickson has an interesting comment here and he says this, quote, that was the spirit in which this grouch had been serving all these years. No wonder he was unhappy. You see, he he had a very skewed view of his father as well as a skewed view, pridefully so, of himself. And sometimes we, the church of Christ, are schemed by the accuser and we begin to view, view God as the one who condemns. And we'll say things like this. God, I've been slaving away for you. Just trying to earn your affection, trying to earn your approval, and this is what I get? He's successful quite often, isn't he? The accuser of the brethren. So it's not just conscience that accuses. It's not just Satan. It's not just people. It's also our very skewed, twisted view of God when we lend ear to the accuser. Lies. We have a twisted view of God. So Paul's goal here is to remind them, the church at Rome, and to remind us 2,000 years later of God's objective truth, the objective reality, and that is this. None of these accusations can stick. They can't stick. Why can't they stick? Verse 34. The gospel. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So not only because he died and rose again, but also ascended to the right hand of the Father, he's exalted, he's enthroned, and he intercedes for those who are in in him, according to the will of the Father. He intercedes for how long? Always. So it's inconceivable that the Father would deny the intercessory work of the Son, who's always interceding, who continually, that is, represents his people. He's representing the elect. Can God the Father accuse the Son of anything? Of course not. He's he's in perfect union with the Father. There's no accusation. And who are we in? The Son. Therefore, in the Trinity. Amen. Amen. Well, then the Christian asks, well, what about when distance sets in? And I know the distance is due to me. When you feel hardness or coldness towards Christ. 
No one else may know what your heart is feeling. That you've strayed from the Lord. But he does. He knows and you know. Regardless of how big the Sunday smile is. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. How's everything going? Great. Coldness is set in towards Christ. Coldness is set in towards his word. And if coldness sets in towards Christ and his word, coldness sets in towards his people, brothers and sisters, in Christ. Okay, what then does he do in, the, in, in, in all of this? Answer, he is indeed interceding for us. That's a fact. Kelvin said it like this. Quote, The intercession of Christ is a continual application of his death for our salvation, end quote. In other words, he takes what Jesus has done and applies it to us always as Jesus stands on behalf of the elect. Okay, now that, just that, as we've looked at in the last few minutes, uh, provides assurance that God is indeed for us, or it ought to. Second point, we, it leads us to assurance that nothing shall separate us. Okay, if we're assured that God is for us, then we can't be separated. Verse 35. Okay, again, remember the art of the rhetorician. Here's Paul. Uh, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hmm? Right. Now, question. Is, Paul says here, is Paul saying... What shall separate us from my love for Christ? If Paul is asking the question, who can separate me from my love for Jesus, the answer would be almost anything. If it's dreadful enough, if it's harmful enough, hurtful enough, dark enough, tempting enough, it'll separate my love from him. If that's Paul's question, there's no comfort and assurance then. Because then it would be in you. That's another problem with Arminian theology. It lays on you. Many of us in the face of distress or persecution, famines, danger, sword, which Paul is going to get to, and we're going to get to this morning, might very well fall. Just like Peter. Just like Peter. He fell hard. He walked with God incarnate for three plus years and fell hard in the night when when pressure was bearing down on him, right? And Jesus said that night, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Strengthen the brothers. If you've ever fallen or when you fall and God raises you up because he holds you to the end, strengthen your brothers. This is where some of us are this morning. We've come to church knowing we've fallen and we feel sifted. Right? You don't have to shake your head yes or no. Just listen. <laughs> Knowing all too well that we are indeed miserable sinners, but who can separate me from my love for Jesus? Many things, including the last thing I was tempted with. That's reality. If it's my love for Jesus, I'm ruined. There's no hope. Threaten me with pain. Threaten me with torture. There's no guarantee. Oh, I pray to God and I hope to God that I would stand under pressure with a sword to my throat. I pray to God that I would be like Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, who at the age of 86 was in order to deny the Lord Jesus Christ, to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And as he was led to the stake, bound to be burned, he said this, for 86 years, I've served him. He's done me no evil. How could I curse the king who saved me? We would hope to stand like that, amen? And I believe that God provides the grace in those times to be able to stand. You don't need that grace now. You only need it when you need it. Or Justin Martyr, 
another leader of the early church who led his own congregation all the way to their joint execution. And he said to them what he wrote to Rome, and it was this, you can kill us, but you can't harm us. (laughs) We would hope to stand like that. We pray to stand like that. But although we would all hope and pray that we would stand with this kind of courage, that's not what Paul is asking. Paul is saying, who can separate us from Jesus' love for us? That's the question that leads to the obvious answer. Who can separate me from his love for me? That's the question. That's a different question, amen? Because his love for you is unending, unquenchable, irrevocable, never flippant, never is is vacillating, because it's not based on emotion or subjective circumstance, but ours is. So the believer here is assured of salvation, not because he's assured of his own loyalty, but he's assured of divine loyalty. That's what's in view. Divine loyalty. And if you do think that it's your love for Christ, then you think you have something to do with your salvation, and if that's true, then you could lose your salvation. What a miserable way to live. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That is the radical, eternal love of Christ that he has for us. If it's not persons, if it's not Satan, if it's not Christ, could it be Alzheimer's? Could it be dementia? When dementia sets in, you you forget who your loved ones are. You forget who you are. Or Alzheimer's. I've been thinking a lot about this this week, and I'm so glad it's God who holds me in the end because if the day comes that I lose my mind and start saying really silly, stupid things, and if I say them from here, the men know to get me out of here. And if I say things at home and forget who my wife is, I know she'll love me to the end and care for me. But I'm thankful that if I forget Scripture or the promises of Scripture, if Alzheimer's sets in, he holds me to the end. Okay, so the next question, then we think through this. What about circumstances? What about this? What about myself in midst of the circumstances? So Paul continues. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love that Jesus has for those who are his? His elect? His church? His bride? The beloved? The brethren? What about tribulation? There's one. Tribulation is a word that means pressure. It means affliction. It means outward difficulty. Outward trouble. Rejection, banishment. Those who believed in Christ in the first century feared banishment from the synagogue to be an outcast. Tribulation, physical harm. I mean, life itself, when it seems so relentless, there's one outward trial after another. He says, what about tribulation? Then he continues, what about distress? Okay, now distress has to do with inward difficulty. It means, to be, it means narrowness or to, 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 to feel like you're hemmed in and you, you can't get out. Claustroph- claustrophobic, distressed, full of anxiety. And oftentimes, outward tribulation leads to inward stress, inward strain, pressure, anxiety, fear, and doubt. What about distress? And for the early church, this is exactly what they experienced. Outward tribulation, which led to inward stress, all because of the next one on the list. Persecution, which means abuse, hostility. It's the world against us because of Christ. What about that? You see the mounting reality here? He's building his case. Okay, what about tribulation? What about the distress that tribulation causes? And that distress caused by tribulation is typically the result of persecution. What about it? And because persecution, your persecution in the name of Christ will often lead to famine, a lack of food. 
nakedness, lack of clothing. What about that? Cold, destitute. Because all those things combined then lead to the next one, danger. Now you're openly exposed to treachery and constant threats. Until finally, the last one, sword. The Machaira. The kind of sword that was used to take off the head. Used for judicial punishment. What about that? Notice this list. This is not an imaginary list that Paul makes up. He experienced each and every one of these things. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28. It's all there. Now, that's why he goes on at this point, and he quotes, in verse 36, he quotes Psalm uh, 44, 22. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. And in context, that psalm was a cry for Israel to be delivered from their distress. And he applies it here. So as bad as things can be for the Christian, will any of these things separate us from Christ's love for us? Can any of these things destroy true saving faith defined back in verses 29 to 30? Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Can any of these things? Notice in verse 37, the answer, no, no. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice, the word is hooper nikeo. Interesting word. Nikeo means to conquer. It means to carry or come off victorious. It's from where we get, you know, Nike your Nike shoes, everybody looks up now, Nike shoes, because you all have them. <laughs> You're all given to Greek mythology because you wear Nikes, <laughs> myself included. In, in Greek mythology, Nike was a, was a goddess who personified victory. She was a winged goddess, and the little swoosh on your Nike shoe is, is, represent the wings of Nike. Nikeo. Conqueror, hooper, super, hyper, hyper conqueror, super conqueror, over conqueror, which tells us that those in Christ are above and beyond victorious in overcoming everyone in everything that threatens their relationship to Jesus Christ because of the love for which he loved us. Super conqueror. See, isn't this radically not only transforming, but assuring. Notice this here. Notice he, he doesn't say, through him who loves us. The tense is different. Through him who loved. This is a very interesting word. It's great. Who loved us. It's pointing back. Okay, to the cross for sure, but even more than that, as we'll see in a minute. He who spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all. Now, with regard to this word love, I want you to look at uh, John 13, okay? Context, upper room, is John from chapter 13 to 17 is all the, the upper room, the last night of Jesus with his disciples, with 11 of them. He begins with 12, but he ends with 11. And it says this in verse 1 of chapter 13. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved, loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. You see, the love that calls, the love that elects, I should say the love that elects is the love that calls. Drawing his own to himself, just like he called those 12 to himself. In a salvific sense, he was calling 11 to himself. He had always loved them, context the disciples, as it had been predetermined by him to love them to the end. And you also this morning in Christ are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 29, him who loved us. Now in this, in this text in John, who was Jesus speaking of in the upper room? 
I mean, in John chapter 13, verse 1, he loved them to the end. Well, he's speaking of the 11 of the 12. How do we know this? Verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's speaking of Judas and he's citing the prophetic truth of Psalm 41 and verse 9. That is what we see here, beloved, is that the elective drawing love of Christ is a love that loved to the utter end. The utter end. Again, back to Romans, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Those who are more than conquerors of him who loved us? Nothing. Nobody. For Christ to love his own with this kind of love to the end has indeed, as I said, a direct reference to the cross, but it also has eternal implications. Okay, how do we know this? Well, by the text that we've read thus far. He loved us in eternity past, that's foreknowledge, loved us then. He loved you then. You weren't even a twinkle in your mama's eye or your daddy's eye. He loved you in eternity past. He loved you at the cross as he was given up for you. And he loved you to eternity future. That's glory. That's the love. So as such, we are therefore more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is a reason for our rejoicing. And then Paul concludes his argument. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither... Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says this, I am sure, I am confident of this very thing. Paul is assuring his readers that he was not teaching them anything that he himself was not fully and completely convinced about. So, feeling as you may, beloved, at times as though God has left you. Feeling as though uh, he doesn't love you as scripture is proclaimed that he does. You must trust in the word and not your feelings because this is what the word affirms. You get this, beloved. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice, he begins with death. Okay, death is the last enemy to be what? Destroyed. Last enemy to be destroyed. It's not life and all of its troubles, as the list goes on. Not life. It's not angels, most certainly. They wouldn't even rebel. They can't rebel. It's not them. That shows how impossible it is. Paul uses that argument in Galatians. You know, even if an angel brings you another gospel, other than Jesus Christ and him crucified and so on. That's how impossible it is. Not earthly rulers, not governing authorities. They can't do it. Not demonic powers. That's the unseen realm. It's not things present. That's the here and now. It's not things future. It's not powers, that which is supernatural. It's not that. It's not height nor depth, which, which has to do uh, with one end of the universe to the other is the best way to capture that thought. It's not that. And notice what else he says. Nor anything else in all creation. Okay, what does that mean? What does that include? Quite simply, absolutely everything that exists with the exception of God himself. That's what? Nothing. James Boyce said this, quote, Thus, if God is for us, and if God controls everything else since he made it, then absolutely nothing anywhere will be able to separate us from his love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. End quote. So this, verse 38, is what Paul was sure of. He was convinced of that nothing created by the Father is able to cause this separation. This is the assurance of no separation. See, do we believe this? Do do, do you believe this? I have to remind myself of this constantly. I was speaking with a friend of mine in the last couple days or so, and we were talking about the problem of listening to yourself listening to what goes on up here. And typically, it's filled with accusations against us, right? So what do we have to do? We have to learn to speak to ourselves. 
preach to ourselves. I don't only preach to you, I preach to me. And we ought to preach and glory in these truths, and we've got to begin with ourselves here. Amen? See, the grounds of Paul's persuasion and deep conviction wasn't based on feelings, and that's the point. Feelings will run you aground if you just lend yourself to feelings and emotion. They'll eventually run you to ground. It's based on the greatness of God's unwavering love. That's his point. Made known by Christ being sent from the Father. And as I wrap this up, we, we, we can't forget something vital. And usually, it's always left out. It's this. We cannot disregard and we cannot blindly ignore the means by which we are super conquerors. You say, well, it's the finished work of Christ. It's not only that. Well, what do you mean by that? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember when we started this whole thing? It's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. There's no salvation, no regeneration, no transformation, no conversion, no perseverance without the work of the Holy Spirit. God the Father, He planned your salvation. God the Son provided for your salvation. And God the Holy Spirit produced salvation within you. John 16, He, Holy Spirit, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The reason you saw the wretchedness of your own sin that brought you to faith in Jesus Christ is you began to see correctly the righteousness of God, His holiness. Amen? That was the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of adoption, verses 14 through 16 of Romans 8, has placed us into the family of God. All who are led by the Spirit, the Scripture says, are indeed sons of God, daughters of God. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. No person, place, or thing shall separate us because we have the Holy Spirit. And He, beloved, listen to this. The Holy Spirit was the inseparable companion of Jesus in His incarnation, in His incarnation when He was on this earth, from the womb to the tomb. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, by the Holy Spirit. Came back rejoicing to pursue and fulfill his ministry by power of the Holy Spirit and went to the cross by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9, 14. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? The work of the Spirit. May we not leave him out of this. It's he who has sealed us He has sealed you, securing you, making you inseparable. No separation from God himself. Are you with me, beloved? It's Ephesians 1.13. Notice, when you heard the word of truth, now again, he's reminding Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, he's reminding them of how their salvation functioned. He's reminding you. He's reminding me. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Who, the Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we possess it? He's the guarantee. Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for what? The day of your redemption. Glory. It's the Spirit. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed... This is day to day, this is sanctification, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And He grants us this. We are granted the same assurance that God the Father spoke to God the Son when He said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Because we have the Spirit is the only reason we're in Christ. And therefore is why we are sealed to the end, guaranteed that we will reach glory. And therefore, because of this, for all who are in Christ, he says of you, this is my beloved son. 
This is my beloved daughter. These are my beloved chitlins. My kids. These are my beloved children with whom I am well pleased. Why? Only because you're in the sun. Because you don't have anything in and of yourself to be pleasing to God. The only thing pleasing to God is his son. And if you're in him, he's fully pleased. That's the assurance. Notice 2 Corinthians 3.18 again. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. And the final step of glory is glory itself. It's the presence of God, the presence of Christ, new body, New earth, new heaven, new earth. Or if you die before he comes, you'll be in his presence. You will see him as he is and we will then be like him. Completely. Perfectly. In the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Therefore, verse 39. Not anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, to wrap up and conclude right now, the questions that advance and secure Paul's argument, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Okay, it's God who justifies. Verse 34, who's to condemn then? Paul builds his argument. Christ Jesus is the one who died. In other words, he was the one that was condemned in our place. And more than that, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall then separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives a list of things. Nothing, that's the point. So as John Stott says, here then are five convictions about God's providence, five affirmations about his purpose, and five questions about his love, which together bring us 15 assurances about him. A very Stott-like conclusion. So have you been persuaded of these truths this morning, beloved? Okay, is this your personal testimony within? Because... For this to be your personal testimony, you have to believe to the objective truth of that which is written. That's the fact. That's the word. May this be our testimony as we entrust ourselves to the authority of Scripture. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of what? Glory divine. That's for the believer. If you happened to wander in here this morning, you didn't wander in here. And you're outside of Christ. You're not a believer. This isn't for you. However, the Spirit of God is the only one who can save you because of the work of Christ. And if you're here and you're hearing all these truths and you're saying, man, I'd like some of that. Well, you've got to want Jesus. And if you want Jesus, it's because he's prompting you to show you that you need Jesus. To qualify for such a promise as this. That means you must repent of all belief systems outside of Christ. The philosophies of the world. The traditions of men that are contrary to the work and worth of Christ. And if you come by faith... To him now, believing, submitting yourself to him as Lord of glory, King of kings and Lord of lords. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. The scripture says and assures you that you shall be saved. You take that up with him this morning as we pray. And if you've been a wanderer all these years and God has brought you to saving faith this day. Rejoice and tell somebody. Tell somebody. Don't be ashamed. It's to rejoice in. Amen. And may this be the truth that holds us assured of his work. Amen, beloved. Father, we do thank you and pray, for, and pray in thanks for the blessed assurance of our hope founded in and through your Son. 
as you have provided him for us, assuring us and sealing us for the day of our redemption by the Holy Spirit, a triune love for which we are enfolded in forever. We praise you and we thank you. May this truth bear witness to our hearts and and seal, Lord, within our minds an assured awareness of your uh, work based on Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray.